there. I'm just gonna hit record. All right, uh, audience, I am super excited to have this guest on. Uh, her name is Claire Wild. She's a, a practicing clinical psychologist in uh, Edmonton. And, uh, you know, we've had a few, uh, a little bit of a conversation online and I invited her to come on the show to talk about what she's seen in her clinical practice, because this is something that is, uh, you know, if you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, um, David and I quite often talk about mental health issues and some of the, some of our past struggles, some of our, some of the things that, that have helped us overcome some of our mental health struggles and make us more mentally healthy. And it's, it'd be it'd nice to actually get someone who knows what they're talking about instead of the two armchair psychologists you have normally on your screen here. So Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for so much for having me on here. Just a little thing because psychologists are categorized in different kinds of ways. I'm a counseling psychologist, which is a little bit different okay. than a clinical psychologist as an FYI. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Well, we're already starting to learn here. Sue, look at what's happening. All right. Um, so I want to talk to you because, you know, I think some of the things we talked about uh, were, were with regards to the, the belief system that people have in their head or the, the, the narrative or the story that they have in their head about the world quite often is, it contributes to their, their mental health. And this was certainly true of me. So maybe what I'll start by doing is just kind of, I'll tell you about my own mental health journey. Pardon me, uh, audience, if you've heard this ad nauseum. But I just want to run this by you and see um, see if this lands. Uh, you know, I'm a paramedic and, and I've been in this profession for well over 25 years. I, I don't want to do the math right now because it would hurt my brain. Um, and when I started in this field, it, things were very different. So I'll, the, one of the first calls I was on as an EMT was a was a serious. It was a fire standby. And we watched the structure burn to the ground. And um, then we did learn that there was, we saw that there was a, actually a body in the, in the ashes. And I, I was the rookie. And so, you know, my, the two old guys that were mentoring me said, all right, rookie, go in there and, and remove that body. Here's a body bag. And uh, it was pretty shocking to me. I mean, this guy was burnt to a crisp. His, he was basically a skeleton. It looked like charred barbecue. I had to struggle to pry him up off the ground. Um, and in that, I actually had to get a, a pry bar to get him up off the ground. And when I pulled him up and, and trigger warning, by the way, uh, <laughs> this is some gory stuff. And when I, when I rolled him up the back of the skull caved out and his soupy brains kind of put, and I caught a whiff of um, his charred intestines mm -hmm. and I went off to the side and I, I started like dry heaving. It took me a couple minutes to compose myself, but I eventually got him in that bag and got him out. And then, you know, riding back to the station uh, in the ambulance after the call, I was just pale. Like, I didn't know how to process what I had just seen. This was a complete shock. And it, it was made worse by the fact that I knew who this guy was. He was an old hermit that would always come into our church services and kind of interrupted. He obviously had some mental health issues. And, you know, but he was kind of an endearing figure in the community and we kind of had, you know, and, and so I knew who he was. And I just didn't know how to process this or what I was supposed to think about it. And uh, one of my mentors, you know, kind of leaned back and, and looked at me and said, hey, uh, is that your first crispy critter kid? And I just, just I, I, I started laughing. I didn't know what to do because I'm like, this is so inappropriate. I, just, I couldn't help but laugh. And, and then he doubled down because he and he said, uh, you guys feel like barbecue for lunch. And I'm like, oh, like, again. Mm -hmm. laughing involuntarily I but 
afterwards at the hall, what he did really, I think, set me up for success mental, with, with mental resilience is he took me aside and said, look, we, we have this kind of dark humor, obviously behind closed doors. We would never joke about this stuff in public. It's super inappropriate. I get that. But this is our way of, of detaching, of getting some uh, like clinical distance between um, us and the patients we have. If, if we take on um, the trauma that we see, if we, if we um, immerse ourselves in, in the lives of the people that we treat, uh, it's, we're, you're going to burn out really quickly. And so what we do is we joke about things. And he said, what I really liked, you had a normal reaction to that call. You, you went off and you started dry heaving. And you'll notice the cop you were with, he was actually puking. And he, but he said, what I really liked was you got yourself together, you gathered yourself and you got the job done. And that's awesome. That's exactly what it is. And you're going to be experiencing these kind of moments all the time on the job. And you're going to compose yourself and you're going to restore order to chaos. That was the message I got from him. And after that, I, I felt like a million bucks. I felt like, yeah, I did. That was the worst thing. You, you could ever hope to see and I dealt with it and I, I got it done and so that the next year working with these guys uh, was one of the best years of my career I mean calls couldn't be traumatic or gory enough they couldn't you know it, it, and that sounds I, you know I'm sensitive to the aware of the fact that that sounds kind of warped but you have to have that kind of mindset I mean that's literally why I got into this profession was you know I watch shows like Rescue 911 with William Shatner and all these people heroes going into traumatic dangerous uh, situations and doing some good and I felt really good about the job now cut to a couple years later I got my advanced care paramedic training and I'm feeling great and I go to a very progressive service very corporate service and um, one of my first serious calls there was a multi-casualty incident it was a multi-car pileup and you know, there was dead people and people in critical illness and, and we were overwhelmed. Like we didn't have enough resources to deal with it. So we had to do triage and we had to implement our, our plan for that. And I thought we did a great job and, you know, there's probably some things we could do better. And on the way back to the station, you know, I'm riding the, this high of excitement of, yeah, we, we really knocked that out of the park. And let's, they, they said, okay, we're going to have a mandatory debrief at, at the station after this, when you, everyone gets back and cleaned up. And I'm thinking, awesome, we're going to talk about what we did good, what we could have done better, how we're going to be even better next time. And uh, I was excited to go into this. And so I, I walked into this kind of excited, almost smiling. And I realized I had the wrong frame of mind because the, the, it was a, something that was new at the time called a critical incident stress debrief. And the counselor that was there looked like, uh, looked like she was from a funeral home or something like that and had a very somber mood. I looked at all my colleagues, very somber, and I sat down and I'm like, what's going on here? And one by one, all the colleagues talked about how they'd been traumatized by the call and how all they could think about was um, the, the affected family members and the tragedy and this and that. And I'm like, man, I, in my head, I'm thinking I'm, I'm a monster because I, I was thinking about how great we did and thinking about all the positive things that we did. And yeah, there were some people that died here and I'm a monster for not thinking about them or like immersing myself in their tragedy and and seeing what this call was like through their eyes and and by the time it got to me I was genuinely upset about the call and and I was and 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 that kind of set the tone now of my advanced care paramedic career 
And in that first year, I had some serious calls. I had, um, in about a month period, I had three kids um, die. Uh, you know, one was a, an eight-year-old kid that accidentally hung himself on a swing when his parents weren't home. Uh, another kid would just had like a, a, a malformation, had a, a brain aneurysm that burst. Um, and then uh, there was another kid that fell off his bike and, and whacked his head. And all these kids died despite everything I tried to do. And, um, you know, with this mindset of fixating on all the things that were outside of my control and the tragedy and the trauma, I developed symptoms of PTSD. I, I hit the bottle. I couldn't look my kids at my kids. I had flashbacks and nightmares. I had severe anxiety about going to work. I was thinking about quitting my job. And it was one, you know, my employer noticed this and luckily they sent me to a, a counselor and it was, it was the one counseling session. And I remember very clearly, it was one question that the counselor asked me that, that basically cured me. Everything, all the symptoms disappeared after he asked that question and, and basically held up a mirror to me. And the question was, well, I was, I was just going on and on about how helpless I was, how everything was out of my control, how I got into this profession to save lives and do something good and provide actual value to people. And here I was not doing anything. I couldn't even save a life. You know, these three kids died. And the guy said, I, I want to stop you right there, Tim. I, I don't know much about your profession. I, I'm just a totally, just educate me here. And I'm, a, I'm an objective observer. He's like, is it, is it really true that you provided no value at all on those calls? And that stopped me in my tracks. And, you know, if I thought about it objectively, I'm like, well, I mean, if I were in the, those, like the, the parents all hugged me afterwards, every, every single set of parents hugged me after, why were they hugging me? What was it of value? Obviously I provided something of value. Um, had I been in their shoes, I would have wanted a paramedic like me who explained what was going on, who took the burden off them, who, who did everything they could and left them feeling like there was nothing more that could be done. Um, and, and so obviously I was providing something of value. And I realized in that moment that I had been living with this narrative of, um, of, of focusing on all the wrong things, of looking at this through the wrong lens completely. And I, I need to go back to looking at things through the lens that those two old, um, <laughs> very inappropriate mentors taught me about, focus, about clinical detachment, about focusing on all the things that I did right and all the ways that I brought order to chaos and look at my job that way. And, and so that, that's my mental health. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I see this, I see what's happening in my profession right now in emergency services. And there is, um, there's never been more mental health supports for our members. There's, our job has never been easier in terms of the amount of resources we bring to bear to these traumatic events. So we're not as overwhelmed as we once were. And yet at the same time, all these positive things are happening. It seems like rates of mental health are declining, uh, suicides are increasing, and things are, are getting worse for our mental health. And the only thing I can pin it on is this narrative that we're constantly told that we are victims of our job, that every call we go on is an injury to our mental health, and it's priming us for uh, poor mental health. And, and so obviously, as a father who has two daughters now that are paramedics, um, mm -hmm. this was concerning of me, I don't want my daughters to be broken down by the job. And so, you know, I said, look, if you believe that you're a victim of, of your job, that's true. But if you believe that your job will actually make you more resilient and a better version of yourself, more capable, 
uh, of handling things that the average person can't handle, um, then that's also true. So choose to believe, look at things through that lens. And I'm wondering if that, if what I'm saying has, if you have anything to say about it and if it kind of matches maybe what some of what you're seeing in clinical practice today. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, the things, two of the, when I think about mental health, we always talk about sort of negative beliefs and there's this list of negative beliefs that we can have about self and the world versus positive beliefs about self and the world and how trauma can affect us. And so I think about how important it is to believe this statement of I matter, that I'm important and that I'm in control. And I've, and, and I've sort of shifted it over more recently to a more focused on, I choose to focus on the things that I have control over. That when we move forward in those spaces, whatever job we're doing, that we're gonna feel better and we're going to make different kinds of choices and our mental health is gonna improve. And so it's this interesting balance, isn't it? Of like, as more information's come out about trauma, about mental health, about keeping an eye on certain things, that then sometimes we can kind of overshoot, right? Almost right. like um, um, when I learned about how headaches could, you know, when I was younger from a physical health perspective, you know, headaches were something, you drank an extra glass of water, maybe you were dehydrated, maybe you took a Tylenol. And then at some point I learned that headaches could also be, um, could also be, um, could also be a brain injury, could also be a, um, a tumor in the head. And then anytime I had a headache, I was like, ooh, maybe it's a tumor, right? Of going that, whoa, right? Like, hey, how do we develop resiliency? How do we develop, um, how do we move through trauma when, they, when that's part of our job um, so, that we can, so that we can build strength, resilience, and then get back to a healthy healing place? Right. I've sometimes even heard in that trauma world or in the PTSD world that this narrative of like sort of, well, it was such a big trauma that I'll, that, that person will never be able to get over it or right. that, um, that somehow the longer we're affected by trauma, then the more significant that trauma was and going, whoa, that's not actually anything about what I believe that that it's an incredible, when we look, it's just not true. We see people who have endured incredible amounts of trauma in their life and who are, you look at them and they are doing well and happy and doing all these incredible things in their life and feeling really great about themselves. And other people who experience a little something or in comparison and that just like devastates them. Yeah. So it's an interesting thing of going, how, do, how can we sort of like make sure people understand that, that there's support and resources for mental health, that it's good to talk about it, that it's nothing to be ashamed of, come right. forward, there's support, um, while also going, hey, maybe there's some things you can do preventatively during, after, and, that it, and, and how do we shift that then moving forward? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's always, you know, that's always the tricky thing about talking about mental health, because, you know, I've often, when I talk about this and talk about the kind of victim narrative that that was, I think, at the root of my uh, mental illness, if you want to call it that, or my mental injury, um, and how I came out of that, sometimes people get the impression that that I think that 
it, it's just a matter of choosing something or, or like it's an easy fix, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you, oh, you just choose to think something else or that I'm trying to minimize mental health here or something like that. And, and it's the opposite, if anything, because it was actually a therapist that helped me get out of that. Like it, had it not been for that therapist who was really good at challenging my belief system and the assumptions I was having about the world, uh, if it had not been for him, I would, I would have quit my profession and probably been having flashbacks maybe for the rest of my life about how traumatic my experience in my job was. And, and that made me realize how important mental health supports are. And, you know, I still use therapists uh, fairly regularly. And it's not just when I'm feeling blah or I need, you know, a little bit of help getting out of a funk. It's like sometimes I want to perform at a, at a super optimal level. And sometimes a therapist can help me break through blocks that are might be chaining me down from reaching the next level of, of uh, optimization or something like that. So I'm a big proponent of mental health. Um, but I, I think uh, also at the same time, there's a narrative that, that sometimes goes along with, um, with, I don't know whether to call it the victim industrial complex or whatever, but they're, they're, you know, they're, they're setting it, us up with this mind frame of fragility, right? They're, they're making us prime to think we're fragile and I like to think that um, that we can be anti-fragile even if we want to. Like these the stressful things that we go through can actually make us better versions of ourselves. Not just that we're resilient, that we can take a pounding and keep going, but that sometimes the stress, if we look approach it the right way, and if we are able to engage the correct mindset, just like going into a gym is, you know, if you go in with the wrong form, it'll you'll get injured, and if you go in with the right form, you can actually get stronger. Um, I, I think about my job the same way and what, what kind of form uh, I'm, I'm taking. And, you know, th th there are even things that are outside of my control, right? Like triggers, for example. Uh, like years ago, I was in a, in a basement fire in a hoarder's house and I was a lieutenant and I should never have been in there with my guys. It was way too dangerous, but, you know, we were just cowboys then and just, uh, you know, to let our egos get the best. Well, I let my ego get the best of us. And, and then we realized it was too dangerous. And then our command called us to evacuate because they saw conditions were getting way too dangerous on the outside. Yeah. And my team, uh, I made sure they got followed the hose line out and I turned around to, to follow them. And I, and I tripped and got tangled up in, in this mess. And um, I, I thought for sure I was going to die. Like I couldn't find the hose line. I couldn't, I couldn't radio for a mayday because my radio wasn't working. And so I was alone in this basement. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face with the heat and everything coming down on me. It was, I knew for a fact with every nerve in my being that I was going to die. Now, obviously I got out of that, but I still get into situations now on my job or in training where my body remembers that. It's like my, it, that's, I can't get rid of that, <laughs> that, um, cause it's, it's just ingrained in my nervous system. It was a deep survival moment. Um, and, but every thought that comes after that, I, I do contr have control over. And, you know, I, what I do, my trick for getting out of it is reminding myself that that day was actually the best day of my life because it made me realize I was going to die. And from the, and that day was like a, a, a shifting point in my life where I stopped kind of following this trajectory that culture had laid out for me that every, that I was expecting everyone else to do. I got to get the next car, the next house, get the next promotion and start living a life of meaning and and you know being a better father and being all all these things that i knew i should be that i wasn't being i my life took a, a huge turn for the better because of that day and and i remind myself that that was the best day of my life 
and and then that all that anxiety turns into excitement and, and i feel like i actually perform at a higher level because of that now you know i i recognize that maybe i have some tools or some gifts that other people don't have like i was able to switch off ptsd in one therapy session i, I was a, i'm able to translate this cognitive knowledge or or into action that that increases my mental health um and i'm wondering what the, the difference is i'm sympathetic because i think a lot of people um might not have you know i had a good childhood i, I didn't have a traumatic childhood or at least not as traumatic as a lot of people where um you know maybe the trauma early childhood trauma inflicted these negative thought patterns that they have a really difficult time breaking out of um maybe you know, I, I just ha have a cognitive gift that others don't have, whatever it is. But how do you take a client who might be stuck in a negative thought pattern and and help them adopt something that, that can improve their mental health? So part of what, like, I have a kind of a bit of a particular language about some of this stuff, because my background in trauma is around EMDR. So I know that there's different therapists who do, who have different sort of um, different frameworks around trauma and each framework kind of comes with a little bit of different languaging about it essentially kind of all doing a similar thing but just different right um, so in in the EMDR world we actually talk about neural clusters that as we're going through our life we're telling a story of our life and so in that story as we're having these different experiences in our lives we are making meaning of that if you will right mm -hmm. we're some kind of narrative and so if I have an experience where I fail a test and I'm sort of and I hear some feedback that says hey this is a good learning opportunity let's go back and review this and figure this out or um, in my world I do a lot of work with um, new new pa parents transitioning into parenthood and so birth trauma things like that and so two people can have the exact or very similar birth and one can come out of that with a narrative of wow I'm a warrior I'm so strong I like really rocked that versus somebody else can go I'm broken I was totally out of control right I had no control over anything over my body over what was happening so as we're building this in little ways big ways depending on how many of those neural clusters so it's based on a belief about ourselves or the world that goes with an emotion and um, sort of a thing around emotion circuits. Are we, is it tapping into sort of seeking emotions or defending emotions of fear, panic, anger, or those seeking emotions around that are curious, playful, connection, right? That, and that's gonna give a different feeling in our body. So what we would consider capital T trauma, lowercase t trauma would be those events of any sort that when we have that experience, it taps into this negative belief about ourselves in the world, it, an emotion, a defended kind of emotion in that fear, panic, um, anger sort of cycle, and that and a feeling in our body, and that doesn't get cleared out. So ultimately, as we're raising our kids, a really great goal is creating more of these kind of positive neural clusters I'm strong. I'm a person who can do hard things, right? We talk about that right. mindset that is about giving feedback to our kids, that is about what they're doing, their behavior, their actions, right? 
that we know mm. when we give that kind of feedback, if you're a person who can do hard gigs, that they're more likely to seek out challenges, they're more likely to sort of see um, hard things as being something that are, is in the excitement, curious, sort of playful kind of category of things um, where they meet their edge. And then when those things come along, that just like makes that belief even stronger. Right. Now, we know this, that different people, I mean, I'm in this similar category to you probably, I come from a great deal of privilege, not that I never had any trauma, but that overall, right, I, and as a middle-class person, as a white, for all of these different things, um, and growing up in a family where overall, I had a lot of experiences where I was given this, you know, sort of help to create this narrative about being a person who can do hard things and being a person who mattered and being all of that stuff that is going to build a level of resiliency when right. things come along later on because there's mm -hmm. not as much to attach to right there's not sort of some old stuff so when we when I go to treat somebody about like say a motor vehicle accident or birth trauma part of what I'm asking is this a new feeling is this like a new trauma or is this an old thing that you've experienced before and if it's an old thing then we actually sort of do a float back to sort of that first thread, kind of like a necklace, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. of what is this attached to? So that we can identify that, we can clear that out, go right. through the worst and, and desensitize it. And we can break that apart essentially. Oh, um, yeah. And then be able to put in place with those memories, we can't get rid of the memory, but we can put in um, and instill a really positive belief that we co-create in therapy about what's needed there and then that right. makes it easier and that builds that resilience moving forward to sort of the next time something happens it's actually going to track into that positive belief as opposed to this as opposed to this neural cluster that is that is panic fear all of that stuff right, right. Yeah. go into a more fight or flight kind of or or tend and befriend fawning kind of amygdala space. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You know, as you were talking about um, about this, uh, I was thinking about uh, about how different my kids were, right? And just you know, doing something difficult like you know, riding a bike without training wheels, and how they responded differently to that, and mm -hmm. how you know, uh, and the role like you know, mom would leave the training wheels on constantly and wrap them in a protective bubble. And, and there's this tension between mom, you know, the feminine and the masculine almost where I'm like wanting to take them off maybe too early. And so that dialogue is important. Yeah. But then, you know, as, as, as my job as a father, I want to see my kids grow into competent adults, right? And I want to see them achieve things. And sometimes my enthusiasm is too, too much. But what I've learned as a father is the kids require a different approach. And, and sometimes, okay, trying to ride that bike without training wheels in one foul swoop is might, might be too much for one of them. And so we have to figure out ways of, of easing them into that. Just a little gain, a little bit of confidence and confidence, and then a little bit more and a little bit more until finally they're riding the bike. Whereas another kid might, you take their training wheel off, they'll skin their knee a couple of times, bounce right back and keep going. Um, and, and as I was thinking about that, then I was also thinking about the role of fathers, play and, and thinking about you know it, it, today I, I don't know if you've it feels like we have an epidemic of fatherlessness and maybe uh, uh, that those fathers that are are helping these kids navigate 
becoming competent and confident by taking the training wheels off and exposing them to things that are just outside their comfort zone. Um, that that um, role seems to be missing a little bit. And I'm wondering, have you have you seen like any change in your practice that that kind of correlates to? So interestingly, so first from a gender perspective, I would suggest like, and I think it's probably varied in different families, but um, I think there are some families that it's split along gender lines. Um, in our household, actually interesting, in some ways we do that balance where dad pushes more and I'm bubble wrap more, but then there's been some other circumstances that I've thought about over time where I'm the one that's like, yeah, let's go do this hike. And, right. and he's the one that's more like, ooh, I don't know oh, yeah. that, right? Oh yeah, so, and I, I would, uh, you know, when it comes to social things, you know, like boys wanting to date my daughters and stuff, I'm the bubble wrap guy, right? Like I'm protective, I'm at the door, you know, and my wife's like, no, let her go. I mean, she's got it, you know? So yeah, it's, it's like yeah, yeah. different, yeah, yeah. you know, so maybe. It's, so it's interesting, yeah. um, especially in this day and age of, you know, of gender, of, of all of that. Um, I will say, so the couples training that I've done that I find really interesting is the Gottman Institute. Um, so I don't know if you've ever heard about them. They, they do a lot of writing. Um, and what I love about the Gottman Institute is they seem to be really some of the only people that like at one point, I can't remember, probably 40 years ago now, they literally brought couples into this love lab in Seattle where they watched behind one-way mirrors, had couples hooked up to sensors and just tracked how were they with each other? How did they communicate what happened? And then followed up with them over time to go, who stays together, who breaks up and, or who stays together and is miserable. Um, and so they talk about the masters of relationship and the disasters of relationship. Then I bring them up because maybe 20 years later, it was probably the, the eighties, I want to say, they had couples who were pregnant where one of them were, right? Like she was pregnant and tracked what was happening differently about the couples who were having a baby and who, who were actually getting closer in their relationships versus the ones who had been doing well prior, but then they had their first baby and they crashed and their relationships fell apart. And so they started to track what was different about that. And they really found the importance of engaged dads, how important that was of having fought, having dad baby time that was specific to dad and baby. Because part of what we see really early on, um, and I certainly fell into this, right? So, so I, um, I was at home, took maternity leave. My spouse goes off to work. So I've got all this time one-on-one -on -one with my baby to get to know my baby, to sort of make mistakes, to sort of be tracking different things. And then my spouse comes home and I'm like hovering. And I'm like, yeah. don't do that. Don't do that. Right? Like, yeah. oh, he needs this. I'm trying to be helpful. But now me and my spouse, um, one of, like, I love that in our relationship. He's, he's a really assertive person and he's quite fine to go, you know what, you're micromanaging me. He's got a minimal right. tolerance for getting my micromanaged. And so he's like, I'm just going to do this and I need to figure this out on my own. Right. And how important that is, um, to a lot from mom and baby to have their relationship, dad and baby to have relationship or the other parent, right? Like 
to have the different parents um, be having their own relationship with that with that child and that it's going to be different because as we're getting to know each of our individual kids parents are individual and so we're going to have different kinds of relationships and isn't that amazing and wonderful right right yeah able to bring those different kinds of perspectives so there's been lots of times where my spouse would be like hey right like no this is what works for me like the with with one of in my case I've got two boys that of like this is what works with him and I and I'm like wow that doesn't work for me at all right (laughs) for whatever reason so it's super fun that way um but we need to I think part of it has been this feeding of that of almost like the perfect parent that you need to be like this you need to respond like this you have to write like all these rules and so Mm. then we read these things as new parents and then we are also fed a narrative that we need to be kind of exactly the same we need to be on the same page about everything that doesn't allow for uniqueness and that sort of like that we bring different perspectives to the table and all of that adds value yeah so Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I once heard someone say, and I don't know how much truth there is to it, but you know, in order to raise an empathetic human, what you need is you you need to both experience empathy and uh, experience boundaries. Right. And, and so that's where the masculine and feminine quite often come in. If we're talking about traditional gender roles is there's an unending fount of, of compassion and empathy from mom. And then you've got dad who says, no, that's, you've crossed the line. That's where your mom starts and you stop, mister, you don't cross that line. You know, so you, so they're feeling all this empathy. And then at a certain point, it's like they have to recognize that there are other people in the world. And those people also have feelings and they also have boundaries and they also have needs and not, it's not just about you and that, that interplay between mom and dad often is needed for the help. So, uh, and, and I just say a little something in yeah. there about that. Cause what I, part of what we need is around perspective taking. I have, I don't know if I've, I haven't really done a a study about it, but it feels in this last year, maybe particularly, that it seems like there's a real struggle around perspective taking. And I get that when they look at the research about that, which that ability to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes, um, that I think they figure in the research, it's something like 10% of the population just do not develop that naturally. Um, maybe even higher, but that's such an essential part of empathy to be able to sort of talk in that really respectful way of going, hey, this parent is like this, this parent is like that, you're like this, right? We're all different. That's part of if we grow up like that, and if we're talking about it like that, then we're wait, that's a way easier thing. Right. Can I go political a little bit for a second? Please, yeah. That yeah. Um, I grew up in a really big family. And my I was thinking about this as I was getting ready to talk with you of like my first year when I turned 18, there was a federal election. And I had two older brothers who were there in the house. My parents were there. So there was five of us talking politics. At that point in time, there were five political parties running in our area. And we were just going to cancel each other out because all five of us were voting for each of the different political parties. So obviously it was a really vibrant conversation, but it was in our home, um, that was a really great thing. Questions were encouraged. 
seeing different perspectives, you think about what that develops in a person's brain growing up when we have all this level of uniqueness. And it, in our household, it wasn't based on gender, even though my dad worked, my mom stayed at home. So from that, it sort of was gendered that way. But really when we came to talking about stuff, it was, hey, wasn't that amazing that we could right. all be these unique people and we needed to hear each other. We couldn't go into name calling. We had to sort of actually make an argument about something. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and you know, I remember growing up much the same way. I mean, I, I wonder how much this taboo on talking about religion and politics has actually served us, right? Because it was, those were the best discussions in my home. Um, yeah, there was debate and there was like disagreement, but it was, it, it challenged me and it, it you know, it, it was, it was great because I either changed my mind or I, you know, found dug better in arguments. Deeper. In my yeah. case, I would like to dig in deeper, but we yeah. didn't end relationships over that. No. We didn't stop being, yeah. talking about it. We still, right? Like we were accepted in this way. Right, right. And yeah, and I, I mean, I, I have a theory about why this is all, I don't know if there's any, any basis in reality, but when I look at, at politics, um, you know, what we talk about as the left and the right, uh, you know, who, who is it that traditionally cares about uh, the least of these, encourages sharing, uh, caretakes the family environment? It's usually mom, right? It's usually that traditional feminine energy that, that is focused on that. And so I don't think it's any, any coincidence that, uh, you know, people on the left that's their primary concern is like is everyone are, are the resources being shared equally is everyone compassionate are you looking after the least of these so is the family environment caretake and and then on the right it's I see traditional dads right like when I'm out with my family my head's on a swivel I'm looking for external threats you know I'm focused on gathering resources for my family I see my purpose here is to go out and work and and you know support the family and I'm a boundary enforcer like that's my this is the edge of my yard that's our fence uh, this is where your mom starts and you stop mister you don't cross that line um and and so i i see these you know i don't see these as as enemies these two different world views or these two different lenses we have i see them as necessary in a healthy family in a healthy uh you know nation state at all at all levels of magnification in society these two uh energies, if you want to call it that, need to be in balance and they need to be talking and, and communicating. And, and that's, that's good. And, and, you know, there needs to be a bit of tension and some give and take between them. And that, that's where we get uh, healthy at all levels. And, and so I don't think it's any coincidence that at the same time we see, you know, record rates of, of divorce and we, we see men's rights activists at the throat of third wave feminists. At the same time, we see this increasing uh, divide between the left and right politically. I think it's all part of the same fractal. And, um, you know, I, as a libertarian, you know, I would attribute this in large part to the bigger government gets and the more we outsource our personal responsibility to the government, the more it becomes a zero sum game where one side is winning and the other side is losing and there's serious consequences for losing like you know there you're either having you're either holding the gun and pointing it at the other side or that gun's pointing at you and and so it's no wonder that we're we're now essentially enemies at all levels of this and, and, and we need to get i sort of see it as um when you only have two sides then and those are your choices like it's right. like this or this that then yeah. those are probably going to go more extreme that and 
in my opinion, right? When versus if we've got five political parties, if we've got different voices who sort of fall all over the different places, then maybe there's some space to go, well, I agree about this and I disagree about that. And this is what I say now to people. I'm so complex. I'm like that yeah. I've got really kind of complicated views about things that shift and change depending on all sorts of things. Right, right. Because I do value compassion and looking after my neighbor and, and being community minded while also being allowed to be an individual and also um, having a sense of personal responsibility and for my wellness, for uh, mental health, physical health, all of that. And so I'm like, whoa, where do I fit? Right, and I think right. there's a certain number of us like that. And so I, so that is a concern on my part of like this, this polarization, if you will. And I yeah. think that sometimes about, about gender of if we sort of go, well, all men are like this and all women are like this, then don't we maybe polarize more? And yeah. that, that I think has been a good thing to start talking about, about going, whoa, 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 right? Like, actually maybe there are these men here right like maybe it's actually not as like polarized as that um right. in our host household i'm actually now the one in the last two years i'm the one that works full-time outside the home my spouse is the one who's home we made this transition right mm -hmm. and so that we can sort of go what are our strengths and who are we right. as individuals right and yeah. allow that to be a little bit more just unique to us and hopefully have our boys grow up going, this is about you as a person. Yeah. It doesn't have to be this role that you take on. It can be you having a sense of self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I, I think whatever the reason, there seems to be less empathy now, whether it's, it's that people are under stress or whether it's because of this increasing partisanship putting people into a defensive posture where if, if I'm not attacking them, they're going to be attacking me. Um, whatever it is, uh, talk a little bit about what life has been like as a, as a counselor this past year with everyone under stress. I'm, I'm sure you've, you're still seeing clients. Have you noticed any patterns? Have you, what, what uh, wisdom have you pulled out of this last year? So, and it's been really interesting as a group of, of therapists as talking about what it's like to be therapists during a pandemic while we're experiencing a pandemic, while we're getting right. messages and trying to figure this out. So, and I think, and I think we've all sort of navigated it a little bit differently. Um, so I'm in private practice, which I think in that group of us that's more in private practice, we have a maybe a tendency towards more a little individualization. Um, so when, when this was starting to come down um, and we were starting to sort of hear that there was gonna be sort of these restrictions and public health and all of that, um, because I was in private practice and I really, really sort of was following that closely of like, what does that mean for my work? Um, so I was very happy to hear we were always considered essential services. And I was like, that that message was there. Um, and that there were these, and then there for figuring out what does that mean public health protocol wise? And how do we navigate this shift? Because up until this pandemic, telehealth was really actually sort of a little bit iffy and kind of 
judged a certain amount as being kind of a lesser form of therapy. And then all of a sudden going, we should actually do this as much as possible to be part of the solution. Um, and so that was actually a really great change to go, let's make therapy more accessible for everybody right. moving forward, telehealth. And, and we could actually start to see data that it was actually just as effective as in-person. Um, so that was one thing. Obviously that took, there was probably a good month of like, ooh, of having to spend a lot of extra energy on technology and making sure it fit criteria for HIPAA and like all the different things. Um, and then, and in that first stretch, a lot of clients canceled. That um, I saw a lot fewer people for the first probably two months, I think as people were just in survival. They were just like all the things just at home. And then people started to come back and with all the different ways it affects them, right? From all the, and, and now like over the course of the winter, I was booked at capacity I was really making sure that I take that very seriously, my own mental health of going, I don't want to book so much that my mental health and my relational health and my family is getting affected. So I was keeping pretty boundaried about that, doing a lot of wellness things for myself, because then when I was going in, those sessions significantly more intense than I'd ever experienced before. Like typically... I would see a range of people, some people who are really struggling, some people who are just, you know, like maybe a little like, almost like coaching of like, right? Sort of they're right. pretty good, but a little extra. Um, and everybody was coming in intense with themes around feeling isolated, feeling um, out of like so much was out of their control. Um, also some theme and obviously couples counseling stuff when both people are then at home all the time yeah. not going out to get right like you think about what we need in our relationships where how important that is for each of us to have a life of our own to like go out and go to work and see other friends typically right and then we come yeah. back and we go oh tell me about your day and we see this other person and that increases our desire for them because we see them as separate right. and we can miss them well let me tell you about my day you left the toilet seat up so that was right? the start of it and then, yeah. yeah and then there's all this pressure because we have to be everything for this other person right like all the discussions all of that that we normally wouldn't have that way and so right. helping helping people move over into a creative space about how can we sort of create a little bit of separation how can we sort of like do all of that was really important. I also saw, still see, a certain amount of what I would call the dopamine effect of, of I like my neurotransmitters, the serotonin and dopamine. I always talk about that with people. And I always talk about serotonin as being like an I'm in control neurotransmitter of like recognizing where my choices are, all of that stuff, and how much more peaceful, calm we are feeling when we have that dopamine that like which we associate often with addiction is that like ooh fun new sparkly right sure. <laughs> is how I describe it that and everybody has a different need for a different level of that but I would say that's really become a lot more tricky to find for a lot more for a lot of people when you're just in your home maybe going for a little walk around and so 
being able to sort of stay in a place where I can help families um, and help clients coming in to sort of get a little creative about how to stimulate that dopamine mm. in ways that are not addiction related in ways where they're not binge eating, they're not binge drinking, and they're not entering into that kind of category of stuff or doing risky behavior. Um, but actually like having that be healthy and well and, and something that is um, at the right level for them. Because if we don't see that, then we see this, this new term that's come out recently, languishing of like, mm -hmm. just like it's these set of people, they're getting an income, all of that stuff, but they're just languishing, right? right. And helping people to come out of that and go into mm -hmm. a place has been yeah. Well, one thing I've noticed is that, you know, I, it's easy for me to sleep as a guy who politically rages against the machine constantly. Uh, I wonder sometimes if I get a, a big dopamine rush out of constantly being outraged. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've had to learn to channel um, uh, that to something. Else. I don't want to get my dopamine from outrage. I, the outrage is something, you know, that, about the external environment, about something I can't control isn't helpful uh, to me. So uh, one of the things, you know, I I've learned is, okay, focus on things that I can't control. So, you know, I've been working out like a madman and doing a lot of reading and, and uh, finding other ways to stimulate myself other than uh, outrage. But what, what advice would you give to people who are, you know, trying to find that balance or trying to, to uh, you know, uh, navigate their way through this? I mean, you've kind of talked about two poles, there's the languisher, and then there's the the person who engages in dopamine, you know, addictive things like drinking and maybe outrage porn or whatever it is. Yeah. How, how do you, what is your advice? So I, I look at this framework of, um, of the, of looking at the, the seeking circuits that I believe that as humans, we generally as mammals, we generally should be in a state of curiosity, connection, play, lust. Like those are our seeking circuits as mammals. And that generally we should be living in somewhere in those sort of spaces. And that when we shift over to fear, anger, rage, um, panic, grief, that that would be sort of incident specific, if you will, right? That that's sort of the goal. You go in, you have some adrenaline because you need to go into the scary environment. You feel that adrenaline, you do what you need to do. And then you get back to curious, playful, which is actually what, mm. what you had happened in that first year, right? They helped to come right. back to playful, right? Yeah. And laughter, right? Even if it was dark. Um, and going in this last year, there's been a lot of messaging that we need to, and I think in an effort to say, take this seriously, of the only way to take it seriously is to be in a state of, of fear, panic, anger mm, over yeah. here. But as human beings, our biology is not wired, I don't believe, to stay in that space for any extended periods of time, right? That we go there, but then we also need to come back, kind of like working out. I've been working out like a, right, every morning. Um, I'm actually in the middle of doing P90X right now. Mm, <laughs> but, but it's so interesting from a mental health perspective because it's like that strain on the muscles right if you strain all day 24 7 your muscles aren't going to grow they're going to like right. you're going to cause yeah. damage you need to go over you need to feel that 
but then you need to know how to rest, relax, recharge, right? And know when you're safe and know when you're in a state of connection, playful, curious space, and that you can, that you can um, be safe and actually be in this space over here. Right. And so that's to me the space of that I work to invite people into and that yeah. I sort of am noticing within myself when I feel some outrage or I feel some fear, some panic, for, right? Of going, is there anything that I can do? What do I need to do about this? Am I right. actually in a, am I actually in danger right now? And if I am, what do I need to do to get back over to safe to actual safety, which is curious, right. playful, all of that. Yeah, I love and that. Curious curious and playful. And, and you know, that that's to, that's what I and feeling and connected. connection. Yeah. Feeling connected. Yeah. 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 And it's when I, I feel most playful at my job that I feel like I'm performing my best and you know when I'm, and and I think this is great advice for for people regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum because you yeah. know I see two types of people get that are getting outraged right it's either you're getting outraged at all the anti-maskers and their irresponsibility for filling up the ICUs or you're getting outraged at the government and all their terrible restrictive lockdowns and and either way you know what, we can't control those things, but we can, uh, and, and that outrage probably isn't serving us. So, so that's some great, uh, great tips uh, for people. Is there, is there anything else that uh, you want to add? We're coming up on an hour here. Um, you know, we, we covered a lot of ground. Uh, mm -hmm. any, anything, any other messages that you think are useful? You know what, I'm probably nothing that's coming to my mind right now, right, this second. Okay. But I do like this idea of really being of um, understanding who our group is and understanding who we're connected to and really feeling in connection. I like this idea we talked about, about like of, of spending some time sometimes hearing other people and other people's perspective that, mm -hmm. that doesn't necessarily mean that because we ask some questions or because we're curious about the way somebody else is thinking about something, that that means anything other than awesome i'm just like getting to know another person and what's and what they believe about things yeah well here's something I, i'd like your advice on actually if if we're if we're noticing people around us that we care about are getting uh really outraged about one thing or the other and we'd like to find a way to help them bring them back to that playful curious connected kind of state of mind it, it, what advice would you give us do, do we listen to them do we affirm their outrage do or do we you know, is there is there anything we can do to to help kind of redirect them to a more healthy space? I sort of go with the I don't know that this is right or wrong, but I I hear people, I attune to them, I um, and then and this goes to something that um, Brene Brown writes about um, that is I think are it's certainly served me well over the last year where she, she's written a book and done a qualitative research about rising strong when life knocks you down. She, and so I'm gonna say a, say a word here, but she talks about one of the initial stage when life knocks you down is writing what she calls the shitty first draft or the stormy first draft. Mm -hmm. I think we've gotten confused about that where that's a normal process, a really important yeah. process actually to like, to take a pause, look around, rage a bit about, ah. but 
not doing that all over social media and not rec- and not saying that that's therefore the actual truth. There are these times in my marriage, for example, where, you know, you're sort of, we would we'll have some conflict and, or my spouse will do something and I'll feel some feelings about it. I have a couple of people that are my close, close friends that I can go to them and I can write my shitty first draft of going, they know what that is. And me going, oh my right, God, right, right. Worse. right? Yeah. And they know both of us and they'll hear that. And I so much value that. And then once that energy is kind of down, then we'll go, okay, hey, now what do I actually need to do? What do I need to communicate back? Right? Like, what am I in control of? And yeah. of going, having having one some informed consent about that i don't just randomly rage now people i ask permission is it okay if i vent because that other person may or may not right or and vice versa and then being able to talk about it as this is my shitty first draft right and and that difference when in a counseling session when somebody's coming in and just like right about whatever there's post-covid the restrictions, whatever, of going, sure, okay, let's get it all out. And then there comes this kind of like, they've gotten it all out. And then we go, okay, we're ready to talk about now what, right? Right. And that you can't do too quick. Yeah, I love that concept of the shitty first draft. You know, that that's uh, something I think, you know, um, my wife and I work on quite a bit is like, you know, because quite often when you put that shitty first draft out there to your spouse, they come back with their own shitty first draft and it kind of escalates into like a shitty second and third draft, right? And, and you know, so quite often what I've learned as a, as a husband is allow my spouse to have that shitty first draft and empathize with it and then, um, and then kind of find a way to connect with what, what's the unmet need here? What that is connected to that shitty first draft. We, we are big fans of um, Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. And we, you know, that's difficult to put into practice, but you know, what we try to remind ourselves is that um, we all are imperfect and we express ourselves in tragic ways that isn't going to get our needs met. And so if we provide each other the space to do that, um, you know, then we can get, get, get that need met um you know if we, if we don't cast judgment on it or push back or get defensive about it and uh so that's some some great advice uh and it's a lot trickier i think to bear witness to somebody's shitty first draft when it's directed at us versus yeah. that is why to me i find it helpful right. to direct mine over at another person and yeah. then i can come back to my spouse with the mm. more like constructive truth right right yeah the other the other little statement that she talks about in there that's helpful is of coming back to our spouse with just starting the statement with the story i'm telling myself right now is that you don't care about me or that uh, whatever that you whatever right that allows a little bit of space there and an, an acknowledgement this personal responsibility part that this is a story that i'm telling myself this isn't necessarily true yeah. Yeah. So instead of, instead of telling my spouse, uh, you know, you just hurt my feelings. I have a story in my head about what you just said. And that story in my head is what's hurting my feelings. 
That's I don't right. know if it's true. You know, That's it right. doesn't put the point the finger at her. It's like pointing the finger at the story in my head, which I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah. And when I've yeah. done that with my spouse, then he's been more willing to go, oh my gosh, no, that is not why I just like, this is what I was thinking when this was happening. And then yeah. we can get to a more constructive conversation about what my needs are, what my spouse's needs are. I also think one of the things, maybe this is sort of my final thing. I know I could keep talking, but yeah. very beginning of this pandemic. And part of it was because um, we've got a, our oldest kid um, has a disability, is on the spectrum. And so we went through some difficult times in over the course of our family where, where resources were tight for time, for all of that. And I will say that one of the things that we really, really rumbled through was getting to a place of this true belief that we always need to figure out a way of all of us getting our needs met. And then we can start to talk about some wants. So when this was coming down in our home, we immediately went to that space of going pandemics, they take a couple of years to work through. And so what are those we, in our, we chose, we wanted to be part of like reducing our contact, reducing spread and going, okay, but what are all of our needs? Because we're all these unique individuals. How do we make sure those needs get met at all the different, physically, mentally, relationally, all of that. Um, and then going so that, um, so that before one person gets needs and wants and somebody's not getting their needs met, because when we don't get our needs met, guess what? We go into contempt and we go into resentment. And and, and then you can't have a conversation because somebody is just like super resentful. So I do see that a lot. People who are really not getting their needs met and who are just then, and then going to blaming and attacking and all of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it's, it's even hard now, um, you know, cause uh, like you say, that first draft to, you know, to a, a guy that might be going out with his, his buddy for beers uh you know with the women it might be you know having a, a martini with your girlfriend that's kind of taken from us now so we have to be uh really cognitive of the fact that hey that that me going out with a friend wasn't me meeting a need how am I going to do that now there, there's ways of doing it but it's going to have to be different and uh recognizing that I think is really important and and getting that need met yeah well I, I mean I could talk to you for a long time I suspect I'll be hitting you up again in the future because there's so much about mental health and, and um, that I, I, I'm interested to pick your brain about. I've kept you here for an hour. So thanks so much, Claire, for joining us. Is there anything um, that where our, 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 my viewers can follow you or, uh, you know, if, if they're looking for a therapist, how do they, what, what do you recommend uh, they do? So um, the psychologist association of Alberta has, um, has a listing of psychologists who are accepting new therapists. And so um, they could go there. Um, I personally, my website is opalpsychology.com. Um, and so if they want to reach out, connect with me, um, that's got my contact information and information about me on there. But um, there's certainly, Edmonton has some such great community of therapists out there. And so if people yeah. are seeking resources and support, um, there are some amazing therapists out there to work with. Awesome. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much again. Okay. Awesome.